This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello there. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. How bad is the immigration crisis on America's southern border? Right now, congressional leaders are preparing to send some $33 billion in aid to Ukraine, yet they appear totally unconcerned about the flood of illegal migrants pouring into the country. In fact, they're about to repeal Title 42, which makes it easier for authorities to expel migrants. So they're not only unconcerned, they're actively encouraging this illegal immigration. We're going to begin today's show with a conversation about this with a man who just returned from a visit to the border town of McAllen, Texas. He's an author named Richard Battle, and he'll tell us why he is so concerned about the Biden administration's immigration policy. Last month in parliamentary elections in Hungary, Prime Minister Viktor Orban's party won its fourth consecutive term, and Orban is already the longest-serving prime minister in the European Union. Some say he's a dictator. They don't like the way he controls the press or how cozy he is with Vladimir Putin. We'll talk with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about how the Ukraine war has affected his reputation and why his first foreign visit was to the Vatican. Do you realize how many different ways your personal data is being tracked and recorded? Your location, your movement, your internet activity, your financial activity, your purchases, your emails, your conversations, your biological data. Technology now enables all this to be recorded and used by people who may not have your best interests in mind. There are plenty of cases in today's world where this information is being abused. For our third segment, we'll talk about our modern surveillance state with trumpet writer Josue Michels. For the last word on today's show, we'll talk about the important perspective that biblical prophecy gives on how the world as we know it has the illusion of permanence. Let's begin now by talking about the immigration crisis. To talk about this, we have Richard V. Battle on video call from his office near Austin, Texas. Mr. Battle is the author of eight books. He's a public speaker for over 30 years, a business advisor and executive. He's also a native Texan, and he's just visited the border with Mexico. And He's concerned about what he saw and with the immigration policies of the Biden administration. Mr. Battle, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about your visit to the border and and what you saw there. Well, I think the interesting thing to me is not only what I saw, but what we don't see reported and the difference in what we see reported in different types of media. Because if you look at different types of media, you get two different pictures. And I think people around the country are waking up now to realize that unlike years ago when only California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas were concerned with border issues, everyone has to be concerned now because there are illegal immigrants being transported all over the country by our government and by non-government organizations who I believe are funded by our government as well, who are enabling this illegal immigration. 
It truly is uh, is remarkable I, that the fact that the government is allowing this and that they're encouraging this. I think back to uh, Donald Trump making it a uh, a priority to build the wall. That was a major issue in his presidency, and there is so much resistance among the political class to doing this. Uh, why is that? Why are these people so uh, so intent on ensuring that this uh, continues? Well, I, th- I think politics is a major issue, but there are other two other issues. One that's been talked about quite a bit, and the other not quite as much. And the first one is is importing future voters uh, for the Democrat Party. There's a great belief that that's going to happen, and there's people, including Homeland Security Director Mayorkas, who is an open advocate for amnesty for all illegal aliens. So that's the first one. But the second one, and this one crosses party lines, there are people that want to allow these illegals to come in as low-cost labor. Mm -hmm. And that is a direct competition against the American worker because not only does that lower wages, but I believe 98% of these people are having to be subsidized, if not totally taken care of, by local taxpayers. Uh, education, healthcare, food, clothing, housing, medicine, mm-hmm. everything. Because if you look at the people coming in, they are not people of means. They are the poorest of the poor, the least educated, the least skilled, and they need help when they get here. And what attracts them to us is it's like hitting the lottery when they get all of those things given to them, which is much better than they have in their home countries. Uh, One of the stark things that I saw down there in talking with the public affairs officer for the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, was that last year they intercepted, this doesn't count the gotaways, people from 150 countries. So it's not just Mexico. It's not the Northern Triangle. The root cause is not in the Northern Triangle like the vice president wants to believe. These people are attracted from all over the world because if they get here, it's like hitting the lottery. 150 countries, that's about all the countries. <laughs> so if they know that there's a there's a, a path into the United States through America's southern border, they're going to uh, to make that journey to to get there. Yes, and, and the lip service at the borders closed is laughable from the standpoint of they make the comment, but yet their actions encourage people to keep coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, They always talk in politics. If you want less of something, you tax it. If you want more of something, you subsidize it. Mm -hmm. And we're subsidizing illegal immigration from our government. Uh, The good news is there's people on both parties, including the Democrat party who are begging the administration to stop this Uh, The congressman from Laredo, Texas, uh, Del Rio mayor, Eagle Pass mayor, uh, McAllen, Texas, uh, they all are begging the administration to stop this. And what's been real interesting the last week or so is the number of Democrats asking the Biden administration not to release Title 42 has swollen because they've seen the negative results from the polls and feel their election this November is threatened. Yeah. 
Well, if uh, if Title 42 is repealed, that certainly would uh, increase the numbers substantially. And we've already seen something like 2.5 million immigrants uh, coming into the United States since Biden took office. Uh, the standard talking point, it seems like uh, that, that the left wants to throw at anyone who uh, resists that is is racism, the charge of racism, as the case is in so often uh, what they what they will throw at people. You say this is not a racial issue. You mentioned the economic impact uh, that all of these people coming into the country has. Uh, What other, you also just uh, say this is a security issue. Maybe you can just explain what you think. Yeah, first thing is it's it's not a racial issue uh, at all. I was married to a lady from Laredo, Texas for over 20 years. Uh, People coming from all over the world are of multiple races. There's Mm -hmm. white brown, black, we've got Ukrainians, Russians coming. So we have illegals of all races coming. To me, it is a national security issue. It's a health security issue, and it's an economic security issue. That's the simple facts of it. National security, they had at least 23 people last year intercepted, only intercepted off the terror watch list. That's more Mm -hmm. than were involved in 9-11. So our national security threat is valid any day. Uh, Health issues, people are not only bringing COVID across, but they're bringing diseases that were eradicated in the United States in the last century. And those diseases are starting to come back. Uh, Those people are not being uh, vaccinated when they come in. They're being given a do not uh, go to jail pass, go, go into the country right. and live without any vaccination, mass mandates, et cetera. And then economically, uh, the U.S. government keeps printing money and throwing us into deeper debt. So they throw money around uh, like it's nothing. But the local taxpayers, when these people go into the communities, the local taxpayers have to pay with real hard earned dollars. And they're waking up and realizing that illegal immigrants are getting benefits as opposed to U.S. citizens. So you you uh, are talking about thousands and thousands of people who are coming across, as I said, something like 2.5 million since Biden took office. And generally they're turned loose. You're, you're talking about the, you know, this get out of jail card or you just need to wait for your asylum hearing later on and then they just never show up to the hearing. Uh, what's your view on that policy? Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because something that's percolating under this Title 42 move that's gotten very little coverage is the Biden administration is proposing to not have the asylum hearings in the courts because they're clogged up and that has bad optics. And what they're proposing is to let the Border Patrol people basically listen and grant asylum status at the point of interception. That will clog the Border Patrol worse than it is now. They're not, uh, they're not able or educated in the process and the law compared to the court. And what that's going to do basically is give people permanent status in the country immediately. And their whole motivation is not border security. Their motivation is to get rid of the optics of the border being crowded with these illegals Mm -hmm. and get them out of the way and around the country in different spots as fast as possible. So that really is the uh, the motivation behind this transporting people from the border communities to 
uh, all of these other places around the country. As a Texan, you, you've gotten a clear picture of, say, just how much a community can be transformed with unchecked immigration. Uh, but you, you, what's happening with de- immigrants being transported all over the country is it's changing communities around America. Yes. And, and what was interesting, the last time I was down there and we were right at a border receiving station, the federal government had set up and I was with the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, public affairs officer. And we were there and we didn't see anybody coming across the border right then. But all of a sudden, several buses started pulling into the parking lot. And his comment was they must have gotten word that a large group's coming across. And that facility was set up basically like a concierge service to receive those people, hmm. give them water and different things, and then transport them to the non-government organizations and other places as their first step into the country. Uh, the next day I go to the airport in McAllen, Texas, and half the people on my flight were illegal aliens. And they were very easily identifiable. They all have manila folders or envelopes with their documentation in it. Uh, Some of them had ankle bracelets. They all had the same, the men had the same tennis shoes and jeans on. The only thing different was shirts. They all carried the same duffel bags. It looked like with the same supplies in it uh, as well. And they were being transported on a U.S. commercial airliner from McAllen to Houston that day. And from there, who knows? And the U.S., I saw one story last year where the U.S. government, the first nine months, had paid $340 million to transport via airlines illegal aliens last year. And so that, to me, is what's infuriating. Uh, And I'll give you one other thing that just really upset me was Donald Trump had paid for certain amounts of wall to be built and materials and the Biden administration canceled that the first day, even though the money had been spent. DPS officer took me, showed me a pile of wall materials and said, not only is the federal government not going to build it, Texas had offered to buy those materials for the state to build that portion of the wall. And the US government would not even sell the materials to the state of Texas. And to me, that is totally irresponsible of the U.S. government's responsibility to taxpayers. Yeah, absolutely. I, the, what you're describing with putting these uh, these immigrants on commercial airlines and policies where they're just so brazenly uh, defying public support for a wall or uh, public concern about uh, illegals being transported around the country. There is a uh, there's a certain brazenness in their defiance that is is quite stunning uh, to me. Uh, now, if you just to you were talking about the economic impact of illegal immigrants. Uh, taxing, you know, social security and welfare and, and uh, the economic impacts that they can have on the country. What, what is your view of the, the right way to handle this in a humane way, uh, in a way, in a lawful way that is respectful of the Constitution and, and uh, just basic human rights? Well, first is we have a lot of laws that our government is not enforcing. The Congress is responsible for immigration law. If they want to change it, they can change it, which they haven't. And so one example is with regard to asylum. The law says that an immigrant 
from another country has to apply for asylum in the first country outside of their country. So we have people coming from all over the world going through Mexico to the United States. They should be applying for asylum in Mexico or the first country they enter into, Mm -hmm. not the U.S., but our government's treating these people like everyone has a right to live in the United States. When they get here, they're treating them almost like citizens. They're trying to obscure the definition and the viewpoint of citizenship and demean that. And our citizenship is a precious thing Mm -hmm. and illegals should not be treated as citizens. And as long as we keep doing that, we're going to attract more and more of these people here because there's no downside for them uh, except the risk of the travel of losing their life. Mm -hmm. The truth about what this administration is doing is being exposed. There are more people who are waking up to it, and uh, it seems that maybe there is a growing sense of political will to uh, to confront this in a way that may actually get some traction. One would certainly hope uh, that is the case. There are a lot of problems facing the United States today, but if this one isn't addressed, it seems the, uh, the consequences really are uh, quite dire. We've been talking with author and native Texan Richard Battle about America's immigration crisis and how the Biden administration is encouraging this. If you'd like information about Mr. Battle's books or his other activities, you can visit his website, Richard Battle. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your insights with us today. My pleasure, Joel. And we always say God bless America. (laughs) I agree. Thanks so much. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Some very interesting political trends are developing in Hungary that may give us a preview of larger trends prophesied to play out across Europe. To talk about this from our office in England, we have Trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's It's been too long. Uh, so last month... Hungary held parliamentary elections. Viktor Orban's party won their fourth election in a row. This man has ruled for, uh, what, 11 or 12 years. Uh, People say he's a dictator. Um, There was a lot of talk about voter fraud in this election uh, on April 3rd. What what are the allegations and uh, how how much truth is there to them? Well, yeah, so it, there is no uh, claims of like totally like uh, third world style Zimbabwe style vote rigging, but there were a lot of um, interesting circumstances uh, surrounding this election. Like, for example, in Hungary, in the Hungarian parliament system, you vote based on where your residence is. That's what your district uh, for your MP is. And in November, the Orban's government changed the law saying that a residence could be not necessarily where you live, but wherever you just receive the mail, which could be anywhere. And while it's not confirmed as to how much this influenced the election at uh, supporters uh, of a certain candidate could all of a sudden change their residences to certain districts to vote in a candidate, even if they don't actually live there. Um, they were also in a town in Romania where there's a large Hungarian minority, um, hung, um, 
uh, in Hungary, uh, the diaspora can vote in their elections. There was found uh, bags, ballot bags stuffed with partially burnt ballots for the opposition. Uh, both the opposition candidate, Peter Marquise and uh, Orban blamed each other. But given the circumstances, unless Marquise was doing some sort of very elaborate conspiracy, my opinion would be Orban and his Fidesz party are most likely guilty. And the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, an, an intergovernmental organization, thought that the circumstances for the election were so uh, concerning, they actually sent observers, which for an EU member state is pretty unheard of. And their verdict was, while obviously, the, again, there was no Zimbabwe-style rigging of the vote, they saw that there was an uneven playing field that Orban put in, um, using his office in government and a lot of other tools he had at his disposal to make it... Uh, as certain as he could win, or as certain of a victory as he could without actually rigging the vote per se, mm -hmm. which is not exactly what normal democracies are based off of. How much uh, has his control over the Hungarian media played a role in that, where he's able to uh, essentially uh, guarantee that he gets favorable coverage or uh, you know, eat up the airways with, uh, with headlines about himself uh, as opposed to his opposition? Oh, uh, hung the Hungarian media landscape is decrepit uh, compared to a lot of other Western countries. Uh, a while back, I spoke to a, a few men in the, hung in the Hungarian media establishment, and they told me that about 80 to 95 percent of media in Hungary is either government controlled or controlled by Orban's oligarch cronies. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of uh, a – there's even a report came out that Radio Free Europe uh, – published where the editor of a state broadcaster uh, was recorded in a meeting telling reporters that they don't support the opposition and were, they're not going to give them coverage. And if the reporters disagreed with that, they had to leave. Hmm. So uh, there's a like, lot of other incidents like that. And even Orban used a government uh, website designed to inform people about COVID for uh, to slander political opponents. So it, again, it, this all contributed to the uneven playing field that caused a lot of uh, that obviously caused the opposition a lot of problems. So Orban's reputation is uh, kind of interesting. I think among American conservatives, you have people like uh, Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson who've actually been pretty favorable toward this man. And, you know, like he's a, a fellow crusader against the radical left. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? Huh. Well, I mean, they look at some of the things that Orban stands for, like um, keeping Muslim refugees out of Hungary, keeping the uh, the country's Christian identity uh, preserved, standing up for uh, liberal institutions like the European Union. They see that and they think, well, we sort of stand for similar things. We'll, uh, uh, we'll obviously side with him. He's a friend of ours. Um, Donald Trump a, uh, pu published a letter uh, last August talking about his friendship with Orban. Tucker Carlson actually visited uh, Budapest uh, with a state welcome. Um, but obviously there's a bit of a difference between, say, like uh, American, American conservatives and some European conservatives like Orban. As we just mentioned, uh, Orban has uh, done all he could to manipulate the vote in his own election. He's the longest serving uh, prime minister in the European Union. And uh, a lot of the things that he did the, uh, and that he's doing, the radical left in America also do themselves, like voter fraud. I mean, we at the Trumpet have covered that with America's elections quite a bit. 
And I don't think people like Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump see that per se. I think they just see somebody that thinks superficially similar to them and, okay, we're sort of allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, our editor-in-chief, has, uh, Mr. Gerald Fleury, has written quite a bit about comparing the political situation in America with Daniel 8, and uh, which talks about uh, the truth being cast to the ground and how anciently this uh, uh, prophecy about a, a man that would cause a lot of problems uh, with the people of God uh, was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king that uh, did all he could to snuff out uh, the nation of Judah, and how we're seeing the same spirit in uh, the radical left in America today, trying to snuff out uh, any godly principles that America has. But Mr. Fleury has also talked about that same spirit being in Europe and pointed to people like Viktor Orban mm-hmm. uh, trying to raise a nationalist, very strong European system, which I mean, if you look at history with people like Adolf Hitler, Napoleon, they were part of that same uh, system, too. And while American conservatives, they could see problems with the deep state and the radical left in America, and they might not know it's the spirit of Antiochus. They could see it's a problem, though, but they can't see the same spirit being raised by men like Viktor Orban in Europe because it has a conservative veneer. Right. So his his reputation among European allies is is changing a bit in light of the war in Ukraine. Uh, he has come out pretty prominently and publicly as uh, not a fan of uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. Um, some say he's pro-Putin. How has the Ukraine war impacted his standing within Europe? <laughs> um, it's uh, given him a bit of a run for his money. Um, he has historically been seen as one of the European Union's closest friends to Russian President Vladimir Putin and everything he's been doing. And while he hasn't uh, specifically said, I'm a friend of Putin's in this war, he has tried to straddle the fence. He, uh, his foreign minister sa- uh, said that they're not, Hungary is not going to put sanctions on the Russian fossil fuel trade, which is Putin's cash cow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orban in his um, victory speech called uh, Zelensky an enemy. He overpowered trying to drag him into the war with in Russia uh, in Ukraine and this has been a big shift for Hungary because for the most time there's I mean there's a lot of other similar conservative nationalist groups ruling in countries in Eastern Europe like Poland and Slovenia and they look to Viktor Orban for leadership Poland of course given its uh, history is not a fan of what Putin's doing in Russia and right. their uh, Warsaw is looking at what Viktor Orban's doing and doesn't like it and the relationship is starting to fray some of the other uh, Orban's other allies in places like Slovenia, they've been voted out in elections recently. And so now he's finding himself friendless. So the, the interesting thing he took for a solution to this, um, normally after an election, he always visited uh, Warsaw uh, to visit his Polish friends. This time he skipped that. Instead, he went to Vatican City, which is really mm-hmm. interesting because uh, him and Pope Francis generally don't get along, but it goes to show that uh, the relationships in Europe are starting to change between Orban and his allies. Well, yeah, so you're you're describing his trip to the Vatican as being essentially looking for allies as uh, he's being abandoned by some of the people who really have looked to him for leadership. Uh, he's saying maybe an alliance with the Pope is going to uh, provide a bit of a, uh, a bit of support that he's lacking right now. Oh, totally. I mean, he, well, he, first off, he visited on April 21st, which again was less than a month than his, uh, when his election happened. And him and Pope Francis normally do not like each other much at all. 
Uh, Pope Francis is, of course, a, a big proponent of the multilateral order. He supported Europe taking in more Muslim refugees from the Middle East. And when Francis visited Budapest uh, in September, uh, the, you, you could see there was quite a bit of, uh, obviously they didn't condemn each other face to face, but through their words and actions um, to the public and to each other, Orban and Francis made it clear that they did not support what each other uh, was doing. Um, but in this meeting, again, less than a year later, none of that was present. Um, Orban and his wife, and Orban's not even Catholic, he's a Calvinist, but uh, Orban was presented uh, in the Vatican by Pope Francis with a medal of a, a saint that was born in Hungary. And uh, they, uh, Orban and Francis spent a lot of time with uh, very uh, with fo- and photo ops, uh, embracing each other, all smiles and that kind of thing. The most interesting thing that, uh, about that trip, or at least one of it, was at the very end, they greeted each other in English as they were about to leave. Um, the Pope told Orban, God bless you, your family, and Hungary, while the Orban said, Your Holiness, we are waiting for you, implying a visit. But when he says, we are waiting for you, um, his, one of Orban's political advisors at the same time about the trip, he put in a few uh, Facebook posts about what was uh, about the visit, and he had a few interesting things to say. Um, the advisor wrote in the post, Uh, The institution of the papacy and the person of the Holy Father has played a prominent role in the life of Hungary since the founding of the state by St. Stephen, who was was Hungary's first king. And then he continues, This close bond has been the key to Europe's renewal on countless occasions. Our common causes continue to bind us together. So here you have a guy working for Orban saying that uh, that the Pope and the Catholic Church have been instrumental in renewing Europe uh, on number of times. You could look at secular history and see, uh, talking about the Holy Roman Empire, uh, was the time, uh, uh, an old state that included countries like Hungary way back when, um, or at least influenced them. And the Bible uh, has a lot to say about the Holy Roman Empire. We've written a lot about that and covering prophecies like in Revelation 17 about a a beast that's uh, rise uh, with seven kings that uh, causes problems for the world, uh, written by a woman, which in biblical symbolism is a, ca- uh, a church. We interpret that to be the Catholic Church. Um, and men like Hitler, Napoleon, Charlemagne, these very bloody dictators, they have been the ones that have been in charge of these empires. And while the Pope and uh, Orban may not have used that terminology, they're asking for one more renewal in, uh, in Europe. And the fact that the Pope uh, responded so warmly to Orban uh, suggests that, and he's a big proponent of European unity as well, he won the Charlemagne Prize a few years ago, uh, the fact that the Pope uh, was uh, accepted Orban's visit tells me he's starting to see a little bit more eye-to-eye with Orban, or at least uh, in terms of bo- both of them fulfilling their common object- objectives with each other. So this relationship between Orban and the Pope, this is really central to some of the most important end-time biblical prophecies regarding Europe and the Vatican. Oh, totally. Uh, Revelation 17 is not the only uh, chapter that we use to analyze modern Europe. We also go to Daniel 2, where it talks about this same empire being like iron and clay mixing together. Iron and clay obviously don't mix, so... This union, uh, it has a hard time coming together, and we're seeing that with uh, what's happening in Eastern Europe. Hungary and Poland are two countries we do watch in uh, at the trumpet for to form part of this union, perhaps. And 
they're having a lot of uh, problems right now. And it looks like Poland, of course, is a very Catholic country. Hungary has in, uh, is historically Catholic as well. Even some other news magazines out there are seeing that maybe that Orban's going to the Pope to help mend some of these ties and get new allies. Uh, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, who was the editor-in-chief of our uh, predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, wrote that Europe's leaders talk continually of political union, which means also military. So far, they've been able, unable to bring about full union. This will be made possible by the good offices of the Vatican, who alone can be the symbol of unity to which they look. He wrote that in 1980. And we're seeing that. We're seeing European leaders look to the Pope, look to the Vatican uh, to try and uh, solve their crises, to so uh, try and solve their diplomatic crises. And this is the small start of what is surely going to be more and more, not just in Hungary, but elsewhere in Europe, more people looking to the Pope to bring about the unity and solve these crises that are impacting Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. We've been talking with Trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about Viktor Orban, his uh, election victory last month in Hungary, his visit to Pope Francis, and uh, the future of relationships between the Vatican and several European kings, as they're described in the Bible. He's written an article about this, Viktor Orban to Pope Francis. We are waiting for you. You can find that up at thetrumpet.com. Thank you so much, Mihailo. Thank you. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. George Orwell's novel 1984 portrayed a world of mass surveillance and suffocating government control over people's lives. In many ways, modern technology has surpassed even what Orwell envisioned. Most of us don't even realize just how powerful surveillance technology has grown or how much we are subject to it. To talk about this, we have trumpet writer Josue Michels. Hello there. Hello, Mr. Hilleka. So tell us about some of the ways that we are under the observance of the surveillance state without even realizing it. Yes, in many cases we don't think much about when we come across a public space and see a camera. It's for our safety and we might think. The first time I really thought about it was a few years ago when I dropped two friends off at the airport in London. And it was getting late and I wanted to take a nap because it was I felt unsafe driving home at a tired stage and I thought I don't see a paying machine here, I don't see any police officer or anything. In the middle of the night I could just park there and I woke up and I didn't see any ticket on the windshield as I used to see them around parking spaces back home in Germany. So I thought everything okay, I can drive home in peace. A few days later I got the bill in mail because a surveillance camera captured when I entered the parking space and captured when I left. And I thought, wow, they addressed that, they saw the license plate, they had it connected to the mailing address and the bill landed in the mail. And you see it on US highways all the time these days. I was used to paying toll when I got on a toll road. It was inconvenient. You had to have coins all the time. But these days, more and more, 
It just says, we scan your license plate and send you the bill conveniently. Well, <laughs> thank you. Right. Well, there's uh, so there's a couple of uh, instances you're talking about cameras in public spaces. Uh, facial recognition uh, software actually enables them to identify personalities. Uh, what what are some of the other that maybe we uh, are in our personal lives that uh, where there's data being captured about us that we're not even aware of? Yes, there have been many leaks that the government has been spying on our emails. They have also been capturing photos from the webcams. And they have been recording digital databases, all to fight terrorism, supposedly. But even many are aware that every everyone that has a smartphone or a laptop or any device that records through audio or video is subject to potential hacker attacks. We know that hackers can get into your smartphone through an app or just an upgrade of an app and they can see you through your webcam if you're not careful or they can record you through your microphones and almost everyone these days has a smartphone or a laptop or anything that's connected to the internet and in a way that is just like having a bracelet around your arm or around your ankle and You can be followed around anytime you have something that's connected to the internet. Some have maybe children that have smartphones and they can see online who the child talks to, where the child goes, what it does, who it communicates with. Well, if the parent can see it, someone else can too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so much of this we're, we're, we're thinking in terms of convenience And there certainly are things about some of these technologies that are very useful, I mean, for a parent to be able to track their child for, uh, is a good example. But we are surrendering our privacy the more that we're using these kinds of, of technologies. How much did COVID-19 increase the power of the surveillance state? Yes, that's immense. And I think almost everyone around this world, no matter where you live, probably has a personal example I was quite shocked when I traveled to Canada. First of all, it was very difficult to go into Canada, but it was for a wedding of someone very close to me, a family relative, so they let me in. But then they said, I have to download the app. And I'm like, sorry, I, I totally forgot about that, and I don't have a device for an app. And they're like, whoa, they couldn't understand that, first <laughs> of all. And then they told me to call them every single day to make sure that I'm self-isolating and report any symptoms. And I felt quite observed. And mm -hmm. they also said, if I leave the house, there might be consequences because you never know when the police may come around. And other examples, we have seen drones flying around and observing people climbing, of all things, a mountain. That's quite, quite a surveillance method these days that we couldn't even think about. And drones are getting more and more efficient, so in the future you might not even notice the drone that's following you around. How much uh, resistance is there to, to these kinds of moves on the part of uh, governments uh, and technology companies? It seems like in a lot of ways, not only is it difficult to escape that, but most people don't really care if they're being surveilled. Yeah, that's right. And I think with the COVID tracing app that came out, people downloaded the app and the government basically could follow who you come into contact with Everyone has a smartphone and they see 
who you come in contact with and they tell you to self-isolate if someone later on is noticed of COVID symptoms. And people didn't mind. And later on it said you need to have a vaccine passport, digital if you can. And people didn't mind that their health record was public. They don't mind if the government is watching them. They think if I don't do anything wrong, I will be just fine. And so we invite technology into our lives without thinking much about it. Mm -hmm. Well, what are some of the abuses that can take place? Do you have examples of how this kind of data that's being collected on private citizens is being misused by the people who are collecting it? Yes, you have hacker examples that misuse your data. There was one prominent example of a deep fake. They collected video footage of someone and they created a video or phone call to then tell the person called that their boss was wanting to write them to write a check and they recognized the voice and thought it must have been their boss at work and they did what the person told them. But it was a deep fake using voice recognition to then create a new voice over to then deceive people, but the government has those same kind of technology and they can do so much more with surveillance. When we, look, when we see China, we think about what they are doing to some of the minorities living there or to protesters. They are tracking everyone through facial recognition softwares, but the same softwares used by governments around the world, maybe to coordinate traffic regulations or whatever it is, but it's the same government that is using those technologies and they could use it for whatever they want in the future. Yeah, I, I think the, um, the example of China is instructive because there you have an authoritarian regime that is doing some pretty heinous things with its own people and they uh, have programs that are aimed at ethnically cleansing certain parts of the, their country. Uh, they're enacting things that are really, to Western uh, perspective, are just absolutely heinous and beyond the pale. Now, you have Western leaders who actually uh, have a certain amount of um, sympathy and and uh, praise for Chinese leaders and the the way that they're using their power they I think there's a lot of cases where we've seen Western leaders who who feel like boy it would be nice if I were able to uh, to do what needed to be done you have fauci praising them for the the way that they're locking down that uh, their cities that are that are very effective in his view um, that type of thing you can see where there is a certain, uh, desire to to exercise power on a, on a similar in a similar way, and then you see other instances of the government surveilling uh, journalists and uh, you know getting data uh, from the the Trump uh, the Trump campaign before the 2016 election, uh, looking for ways that they would be able to weaponize uh, what they found against them, and they they hey, have been able to do that successfully against. Uh, against people who they wouldn't be able to receive uh, court approval for that kind of surveillance under normal conditions, and they've been able to get that done anyway. Yes, and we see it really all, all over the world, as you said, and you never know if there's a protest the government doesn't like. They have cameras everywhere, and with modern software, there can be thousands and thousands of people 
but they can recognize faces in that quote, identify who they are, take up their criminal records, take up their personal stories, and they know where to find them and they might knock at the person's door the next day. There's really no right. way to hide and no way to know what the government might be looking for. And as we have seen in the US especially, they might make up reasons and you are in prison, you are under surveillance right. and you don't, you don't know why. And people try to get those people out with a hard time finding a way. Yeah, yeah, we saw that in use with the uh, the January 6th protest in Washington, D.C. We saw that as well with that trucker convoy up in Canada. But let's talk about Bible prophecy. There, there's a prophecy in Revelation that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years, the mark of the beast. This is Revelation 13, 16, and 17. It says he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. What is the truth about this prophecy and what is that mark? Yes, that's why right. it has gotten a lot of attention, especially in the connection to the vaccine passport. People might be excluded from business if they don't have one. Others think it might be chip in your hand and those chips are exi existing today and you can pay instead of your credit card with them but few realize what that mark of the beast actually is. Peter has said very clearly that no prophecies of any private interpretation, so we can speculate all we want about what that mark of the beast is. As individuals, we can't understand it unless God reveals it, and he has revealed it through the pages of the Bible. And Isaiah says, we have to put scripture upon scripture to understand what the Bible is about. And the late Herbert W. Armstrong has done exactly that. He has followed the instructions of the Bible to understand Bible prophecy. And God has opened his mind to that. And he has written a book, Who or What is the Prophetic Beast, where he explains this topic thoroughly. And there he explains that the mark of the beast is Sunday worship. Now people might be confused how can Sunday worship be connected to the mark of the beast. But if you look at history, you already see that people weren't able to engage in business if they haven't kept that mark. The Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire in Europe has been persecuting Jews. They have been excluding them and others from commerce if they haven't kept Sunday as the one today, as they say. Well, really, these technologies that we're talking about could actually aid in implementing that mark. I, I mean, to prevent someone from buying or selling is pretty easy today, actually. Yes, that's right. We have seen how many confuse the technology with the mark of the beast, not realizing when the mark of the beast actually comes that those technology will be used to enforce it. They are definitely not the mark of the beast that can be proven from the Bible. But as the late Herbert W. Armstrong said, there will be again a secret police of the political state that will enforce that mark on the behest of the church. You can think about the Nazi empire. There were spies going around the cities, going around the villages, listening to people's conversations to make sure that they align with public policy. Well, these days it might be a drone. These days it might be some kind 
of a hacker that goes into your smartphone, into any device and listening to your conversation. It might be the time that you get told that you have to work on Saturday and have to only rest on Sunday. Well, if you're found working, receiving money, checking in, clocking in, on any other date than you are supposed to, your bank account can be frozen. If cash is abolished, as likely it will be, there's no way you can find anyone to pay you without them finding out that you have been paid, although you didn't obey the command of a six-day work week, or however they may phrase this. And we see it coming, we see economic dire times coming in the past, that has called on people to sacrifice, they might say, just for 14 days, you have to have a six-day work week, and people will follow, and if you don't, they will find you. Hmm. Well, it certainly is interesting to uh, consider that prophecy that Herbert W. Armstrong uh, spoke about all those years ago uh, in light of the kinds of tools that governments have available to them today to enforce something like that. It definitely does bring those prophecies to uh, greater life than ever before. We've been talking with trumpet writer Josue Michels about the modern surveillance state. He's written an article that will go out as the trumpet brief for today. This is our free email service that we send out each weekday with important news. Visit thetrumpet.com. You can get on our mailing list for free and do watch for this article. Thanks so much, Josue. Thanks for having me again. It's time for today's Last Word. Most people act like the world is just going to go on and on, just as it is. The present has the illusion of permanence. You go to any shops or sporting events or anything, and people act like this will all last forever. Biblical prophecy gives us invaluable perspective. In it, God warns us that this world is not going to last forever, not the way that it is now. And he wants people to see what the end result of their disobedience is. In his most important prophecy, the Olivet Prophecy, Jesus Christ said this, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. You know the end of the age is near, that Jesus Christ's return is near by watching for these specific signs that he has given us as they're fulfilled step by step. Christ tells us that we have to be on the lookout. We need to be ready. We need to be vigilant. Prophecy is our spiritual clock. It tells us exactly where we are, exactly where we are going, what time it is according to God's clock. Where would we be without that? Many years ago, I lived for three months alone in a cabin in the country, 
three days a week. I had no contact with people. And on those days, I didn't need a clock. My days were very unstructured, which was nice in some ways. But clocks are necessary for keeping appointments. Imagine knowing all the the Christian living instruction in the Bible and understanding God's law and all of that, but not having any prophecy. How would we have any sense of urgency? It would be much harder to have the alert attitude of making ourselves ready. As it is, we can look around and know that Christ's return is close. We're right on our toes, anticipating that great event. It keeps us focused on his return, and it gives our lives more urgency for the things of God. It increases our sense of expectation for God's kingdom. The church founded by Herbert W. Armstrong abandoned its teachings on prophecy after he died in 1986. And this is what they now have printed on their website. People need to repent and trust Christ whether or not his return is near, whether or not there will be a millennium, whether or not America is identified in Bible prophecy. Now, of course, that's true. We need to repent and trust Christ. But All these things are in prophecy, and that church is only saying that to undermine prophecy. Think about that. What if America is not identified in Bible prophecy? Well, the Bible is filled with prophecies about Israel and what will happen to Israel in the end time. What good would all that be if we don't know who Israel is? God put all of that instruction there as a warning to the modern nations of Israel. And so if he doesn't reveal who Israel is, well, what's that all about? That's just a big game. It is not a game. God gave those warnings with purpose. And the reason people, so many people, might think that it's kooky to say that is that they do not know the great God of love. They don't understand just how loving he is in giving these warnings to us. Prophecy motivates us to finish the work that God gives us to do. A specific reason God gives prophecy is to warn people, and someone has to deliver those prophecies that God has given to the people he wants them delivered to. This work that you're listening to here, this is a prophetic work, and these prophecies enable us to do God's merciful warning work. God isn't going to just spring these calamities on the world. He gives us plenty of warning, and he's actually trying to prevent Israel's destruction by prophesying about it. The basis of prophecy is love. It comes from the God of love who's trying to get a message through to mankind. He's warning what is going to happen in an effort to turn them around so they will not have to suffer. These are just a couple of the marvelous purposes of the prophecies of the Bible, and they're excellent reasons why we should make this a regular part of our Bible study.
I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Richard Battle, Mihailo Zekic, and Josue Michels. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Eric Hoffer. When people are free to do as they please, they usually imitate each other. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.